good. I enjoyed a lot because I got to go downstairs and play with the kids. And we had 19 kids last week. Yeah, praise God. That being said, that being said, if God puts it on your heart to work in the children's ministry, please come and contact me uh, or um, uh, talk to Jerry. Where is she? She's downstairs. Okay, Jerry or Sarah. I know there's a few people in the pipeline. Um, <clears throat> but if God puts that in your heart, please talk to me because we can use your we can use your help. As you can also notice, I got a little bit of scratch in my throat. So, yes, we are next month though. <laughs> if we announce it now, nobody will remember. <laughs> ignore that. Ignore that. But uh, check the calendar online if you want to know more about some of our announcements or some of the exciting stuff that's going on. Uh, I want to pray. I want to dive right in. How many of you guys had a good 4th of July, though? Good 4th of July? We, uh, we took Thursday off from here. If you came by or you called, you didn't get anybody because we took Thursday off for 4th of July. And we took a three-day weekend and ran up to Seattle, uh, sort of on the spur of the moment, to spend 4th of July with my family up there. And it was a lot of fun. But obviously, uh, the constant driving and uh, lack of sleep have wreaked havoc on my voice. So I appreciate your patience with me and your prayers as well. So let's pray, and I want to I dive into what we got going today. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come together and worship you and fellowship with one another. And as we come to your word, we come with expectation, expectation of something that you have to give us. So we ask that you would open our ears and open our eyes to receive that which you have for us, and you would open my mouth to speak it, God, uh, and that you would be with us this morning as we go to your word. Amen. All right, so today uh, is an exciting day because we are starting a brand new, we're starting a brand new series, uh, and it's called Through Christ, and you have in the seat back in front of you, um, or possibly behind you, a little cheat sheet, which will give you the scriptures (coughs) that will be preached on uh, for the next eight weeks. You can take that home, and what you can do, if you're interested, is... You can read the scripture that is going to be preached on that coming Sunday. If, if you didn't get one, by the way, we're going to print some more out, and we're going to, they'll be in the back. But you can actually read it in preparation for the sermon, so you'll get like a, a head start on hearing what God is speaking, okay? So that's for your benefit to take home with you uh, and to and you ask, how is it that he knows what he's going to preach on? God talks to me, and I listen to him. That's how it works. That's how I... That's how I discover what to preach on. Um, I had somebody come to me once a long time ago when I was working in youth ministry, and they said, I really want to preach this sermon. I heard a great sermon last night, and I want to preach it to the youth group. And I said, you know, what would be better than that would be just listening to God and, and yeah. preaching whatever sermon he gives you yeah. to preach on. <laughs> you know, Not that there's not great sermons out there. There are certainly good sermons. But, um, yeah, I, I, I preach what God tells me to preach. So today we're going to be preaching on 2 Kings. So grab your Bible, crack it open. What I'm excited about this series, Through Christ, is that we're going to be jumping around quite a bit. We're going to get some history. We're going to get some Gospels. We're going to get some of the letters. Uh, We're going to get some prophetic literature. Uh, There's going to be multiple different genres of literature that we're going to kind of preach through and look at. And today we're in 2 Kings, which is history. It's basically history. The book of 1 and 2 Kings is a historical account uh, of what transpired when uh, Israel and Judah were in the land of Israel and Judah. And they were there, and they had kings, and that's why it's called the Book of Kings, and so on and so forth. So, today we're looking at 2 Kings 6, 8 through 20, 
four, I think. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and read it. <clears throat> and you can actually, you know what? Who else wants to read it? Because I'm going to save my voice. Who would like to read this? Go ahead. Don is going to read this for us. Go for it. Uh, Aram and Aramians are the tricky parts. Aram and Aramians. Ar- yeah, Arameans. You could do it however you want to do it. Go for it. Let's pause right there. I'm going to get you to read the rest in a little bit. So what's going on here? Well, this is sort of the introduction to the story that I want to talk to you about. There's a king. He wants to make war with Israel. So he has a plan. He has his advisors. They get together. They come up with a battle plan. It's sort of like D-Day, right, an invasion. And they come up with a secret plan of how to invade. And somehow the king of Israel finds out about it, and he adds extra defenses to whatever area the king of Aram is going to come and attack. That's very frustrating, right? You can imagine, what if D-Day had happened, but the Germans knew exactly what we were going to do. They weren't fooled at all. Remember, there was this whole operation to fool the Germans that we weren't going to land at Normandy. We were going to land at a different location so that we could divert some of their troops. Imagine, though, if somebody, somehow they had found out the real intention of D-Day. It would have been a disaster. and The war probably would have gone a different direction. So that's what's happening here. And so you can understand the frustration that the king of Ram is, ma- is having here. Somebody keeps on telling the king of Israel where we're going to be landing. It's very frustrating. Uh, what's going on here? So he assumes, of course, that the people he's been talking with are, you know, there's a spy. There's somebody has, you know, turncoat among us. So he calls them all together and he says, which one of you guys is betraying us? And they say, no one's betraying you. The problem is there's a prophet in Israel. His name's Elijah. Elisha. And whatever you happen to say, he said, whatever you say in your bedchamber, whatever you, you can lock the doors. You could be in a room by yourself. And you, whatever words you speak, he's able to pick up on it, and he tells the king of Israel. Very frustrating. Can you imagine? Very frustrating for this king. Okay, so he says, all right, you know what? Set aside invite, invading Israel. I'm not so interested anymore in invading Israel. I want this guy. I want him dead. Right? I'm, I'm done with this guy. So he sends a massive army to Dothan uh, where Elijah is staying. Okay, that's the introduction. Is everybody with me so far? Everybody's, everybody's in the story. You're in the zone. Let's read the next portion of the story. Go ahead and put it up there. We're going to read the next few verses to verse 17. Oh, no, no. Back it up. to ver- So read, start with 15 and then go to 17. There you go.
Yeah, let's leave that up there. Let's leave verse 17 up there. Yeah, leave verse 17 up there. This is what I want to preach on today. The lenses through which we view the world determine our understanding of it. The lenses through which we view the world determine our understanding of it. So we just celebrated July 4th, right? American Revolution, very exciting day here. Not so much celebrated in England. (laughs) I don't know if you knew that or not. My dad always jokes and says, on July 4th, the English celebrate Thanksgiving. You know? <laughs> but uh, July 4th is a happy, exciting day for the, for the Americans, for the United States of America. Uh, not so much from the other perspective. Can you imagine living in 1776 in Britain and hearing about the colonies which are beginning to revolt and knowing that you are sending your sons across the ocean to go and die in a foreign country so that uh, the colonies that your uh, country controls would remain within your empire. And then they lost. You imagine the sort of grief and frustration and sorrow that they would be experiencing. While at the same time, on the American side, the jubilation and the excitement and the, the joy of what transpired there. I, I'm happy to, to, to know uh, and this is not a point of bragging at all, it's just a point of, know, of knowing uh, where I come from and who I am, that I have a line, uh, quite a few lines that go back to the Revolutionary War, um, and we have quite a few um, veterans of the Revolutionary War in our family. Amy, uh, you know, she got the claim to fame. She, we know that somebody from her family is actually at Bunker Hill, uh, which is, you know, kind of a, kind of a thing. Um, but uh, for our family, we know that there's there's those who, have, who were serving in that war at that time that were related to us, you know, in a direct line back to us. And I can imagine the sort of excitement that they were experiencing on July 4th and then in later in 1781 when the war actually ended. Um, but there was one person that I learned about recently, and that was on my mother's side. And he was a farmer, and I think he was in Connecticut. He was a farmer in Connecticut. And I... Uh, researched on this guy and found a story about him. And it said that after the war, after the Revolutionary War, he was known in his community as a Tory. And you know what the Tories were? The Tories were uh, colonialists, colonists that supported the British government. So not everybody was on board with the whole Fourth of July independence thing. There were some people who were against it. Uh, who lived in the colonies. And this man who, lived, who worked on a farm in Connecticut, it was a, he, I think he was 50 or 60 years old at the time, and he was a Tory. He supported the British government. And after the war ended, it said that uh, groups of revolutionary veterans and others came to his house, and they lynched him for being a Tory. And I thought to myself, what a very, uh, well, first of all, what a very terrible thing to have happen. But then secondly, what a very interesting thing that two people could be living next to each other, experience the same war, but because of their perspectives, because of the lens that they had, they perceive it very, very differently. For one group, it's exciting, it's life-giving, it's independence. For another group, it's death, it's destruction, it's the end of something. We don't really think about that. There's a quote, I can't remember who said it, but he said, history is written by the victors. And that means basically that the ones who come out on top get to decide how we talk about it, right? 
because they're the ones that are left. They get to write the history books. They get to teach. They get to do all those things. They occupy the places of being able to explain how this all went down. And of course, in our narrative, and again, like I said, I have many relatives who fought in the Revolutionary War. And for our narrative, we get to celebrate July 4th, but we forget about the fact that there were people who, on the other side of that who, for July 4th, was a very different sort of holiday, very different idea. And here's the point. If you're at all interested, all of you are interested in, if all you're interested in is advancing your own position, advancing your own narrative, then the only perspective you need The only lens you need is your own. If you are only interested in advancing what you believe is right, then the only lens you need is your own. But if you are interested in something more than that, if you're interested in transformation, if you're interested in a community, which includes all people, if you're interested in interacting with the world through Christ, then you're going to need to rely on perspectives and lenses that are not your own. It's not good enough, as much as it is a good thing, it's not good enough to win the war if you're going to turn around and lynch people on the other side of that war. It's not good enough. And if you think that it's good enough, then all you need is yourself. But if you believe that it's not good enough, like I do, then you need the perspective of other people. You need that other side of the coin. The other side that experienced it in a very different way. So here we have a story. And really the, the, the moment of transformation of this story comes here in verse 17. When Elisha prays for his attendant. The attendant's perspective was not incorrect. Right? He saw what most everyone else saw. He saw what you and I would have seen. An army surrounding a city. Okay? That was his perspective. He saw them clearly. What he was missing was the angels. He needed the perspective of someone who was not himself. He needed somebody else's lens to see what he could not see. He needed someone with a different vantage point to cue him in on what else was going on. His picture was incomplete. He needed Elisha to pray for him. And we as a people need to take on the perspectives of others but at the same time, <clears throat> at the same time, we need to contend for people whose eyes are blind, who lack perspective. Notice that Elisha is the one here who initiates the prayer. Right? And I think a lot of times, sometimes in our dialogues, we are waiting for other people to come and join us, to come and share our perspective. When we need to initiate the transformation that involves taking on their perspective and giving them ours. We need to pray that their eyes are open. And we need to look for the blind spots that we also have. So we intentionally seek out the perspectives of others. Why is that? Is it because we are interested in humanism and a purely human perspective? It's not at all like that. It's because we're interested in Christ and in Christ's perspective. See, Elisha knew that his attendant did not have godly sight on his own. He knew that his attendant was lacking something. He needed another person to pray for him. Somebody says, can't I just see God on my own? You know, can't I just do this religious thing by myself? Can't I just 
have church at my house and not interact with you people, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. No, you can't. You need other people around you. Because God has hidden himself inside of others, inside of their perspectives. And their perspectives are necessary for you to see the full picture of what God is doing. So while we're seeking the perspectives of others, we're seeking out God's perspective. We're not just doing it solely for the sake of understanding, you know, what this guy says, because I think that's an important thing to do. We're doing it because there's a value, there's a godly value there. Right? The attendant was missing out on godly wisdom. That's why he needed that other perspective. And the reality is that sometimes seeing the world through another person's eyes, seeing the world through another person's lenses can be quite jarring and disturbing, right? Can you imagine the fear that you would have if you were this man, this attendant, up on a wall looking at an army, and then all of a sudden, bam, the entire mountain is full of chariots of fire and angels all around Elisha. You would freak out, right? Or it's just me. Would I freak? I would freak out. Would you freak out? Lee, would you freak out? Be honest with me. Yes, you would. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. You would freak out. All of a sudden, if you could see all the angels around, it would be scary. It would be jarring, right? It would be disturbing to you. Maybe you'd run and run and go hide and go, you know, lock yourself in a room somewhere. That would be understandable because it would be so jarring to you. But it would be important for you to see anyways. It would be important for you to know anyways. Even if it was jarring, it's important for this attendant to understand what is truly going on. Because all he has is his own perspective. We had recently, um, some of you knew, know, knew about this, and, and others of you maybe didn't. It wasn't, a, it wasn't very publicized. It did make it into the, new, into the news guard, which I feel like, I feel like in our city, if something makes it into news guard, it's, it's like newsworthy, you know. Um, and that was that there was a big uh, legal, ooh, legal uh, battle. I'm sorry, I scared Tessa. There was a big legal, legal battle between organizations and churches that wanted to house homeless people and the city. And so I was involved. I went to a meeting, which was, which was, um, it was good that we went there. And there was quite a few other pastors that went. And basically what it came down to was the city, um, the city in an effort to regulate um, the use of churches to house homeless people, um, proposed an ordinance which would have destroyed the homeless ministries that we had in, in town. So Family Promise, the Warming Shelter, all those ministries would have just gone plah because of the way that the city wanted to regulate. And I, I, I assume, see, this is the thing. So once we found out about this and the Ministry Association found out about this, but it was really late. You, know, it's, you always find out late notice. It's like, tonight there's a meeting. And so it was real late notice, but the Ministry Association found out. And so we showed up. And it was probably seven pastors or so, which was great. Some of them not even a part of the ministerial association uh, showed up. And we all, you get, at a council meeting, if you've ever been, you get three minutes to talk. And so you know me, I took like five and a half minutes. I felt bad. But, um, but all of us, you know, basically said the same thing, which is churches have a responsibility for homeless people. I mean, this is, that's not, it's not like a, uh, you know, our religion does not allow us to ignore them. Okay. So 
we have these ministries like Family Promise that do a great job, that are phenomenal, that I'm in huge support of, that get people off the streets. And we want to see them continue. And we want to invest in them. So um, we had all these pastors coming out and kind of giving their perspectives on it. And I think that the council, what I perceived was that the council did, was not expecting this at all. And it wasn't because they were malicious. It was because they did not understand the ramifications of what they were doing. Okay. They needed our perspective. They needed the perspective of pastors to come and say, look, what you're doing is actually going to lead to this. Um, and then there was, uh, there was several weeks, and actually just got resolved last week. There were several weeks of um, back and forth. And what I soon realized in this whole discussion was that there is a huge gap of perspective between business community, neighbors, churches, and the council. A lot of neighbors were saying, look, we don't want, uh, for example, one of the statutes was that they could, uh, we, we wanted to be able to house homeless at a rate of one person per 50 square feet of our church space. So that's a regulation that the, the Lincoln City Council wanted to give you, wanted to give us. The problem is our rooms downstairs where we actually house homeless people, if we had that ordinance, it would severely limit the amount of people we could put in those rooms. So if we had a family of six, for example, we'd have to split them into different rooms. So you'd have kids sleeping in one room and adults sleeping in another, and that's not right. That's not okay. Um, so, but the way that it was broadcast through the news guard, God bless them, and from the perspective of other people was, hey, for example, and Lincoln City Forest Group, by the way, I, can I just give you a shout out? I know there's really a lot of asides, but Lincoln City Forest Group was mentioned several times because we host Family Promise the most during the year. Can I give it? Yeah. Can I get an amen for that? So it was constantly, we were used as the example of like, from both sides actually. Um, so from one perspective, people said, hey, Lincoln City Foursquare has like several thousand square feet. So that means that you could house up to whatever, 80 people at your church. And neighbors would say, 80 people? We don't want that church to have 80 homeless people in it. And what would that do to the neighborhood and whatnot? Okay, so then we have to say, no, <laughs> We're not putting people in the bathrooms, okay? We're not putting people in the cry room or even in our sanctuary. We're putting people in some rooms downstairs. Uh, there's a very limited amount of people that we fit in those rooms, like 15 people max. But, so what's going on here? It wasn't that they were wrong. We did have that much square footage, okay? We did have, that was the potential. It was that they were lacking a perspective. They were lacking our voice. So when we were able to give them our voice, when we were able to hear from them and understand their concerns, and gosh, I've never thought of it from the perspective of a neighbor, or I've never thought of it from the perspective of a business owner, and you've never thought of it from the perspective of a pastor or of a minister. When we were able to share our perspectives, we were able to arrive at a better conclusion. So it was resolved last week. They brought the regulations way down, so it's not going to affect Family Promise or the Warming Shelter. Praise God. Um, yeah. And that was largely, I think, a credit to the interaction that we were able to have with the council and the pastors and whatnot. Okay. So, what's it like to take on the perspective of others with whom you disagree? It can be a very jarring thing, a very disturbing thing. 
but it's an important thing. If you want to get to a real truth, I'm going to give you one more example before we move on. And that is um, that you might have seen it on the back, but on July 27th, there's a powwow over in Turner, Oregon, which is just um, east of Salem. And we're going. Well, we're going. Um, and we want to invite you guys to go too. So this is put on by Wicoma, which is, Wicona is a uh, Christian uh, Native American organization. And they're going to have somebody from Siletz Grand Ronde over there doing uh, some music, I think. And they're going to have other people from other tribes in the area. And they're, we're coming together uh, and doing this powwow. I'm very excited about it because it'll be my first powwow I'm going to. But the perspective of Native American Christians, Christians who are Native Americans, is one which is potentially very different from the perspective of European Americans, Christians, European American Christians. Okay, because when you start talking about what it means to live in the United States, about what the 19th century and the Trail of Tears was all about, about uh, what a, what who God is and how God works and how God moves through communities, you're going to discover that people have very different perspectives. Okay? And at first, the initial reaction might be, this is too jarring. This is too disturbing. I need to go and lock myself into a room by myself and hide. These angels, they are too much for me. That's understandable. But it is important that you see, that you understand, that you hear and realize that there is other things going on in this world. Other perspectives. Angels. That maybe they're hidden from you right now, but you need to see them. So on July 27th, we're going to go to Turner. We invite you guys to come with us. Uh, there's information on, post on the back bulletin board. The first important aspect of navigating this world through Christ is the realization that I need to learn from other people. I need to inhabit the places of other people. I cannot assume that my perspective is the only perspective and that others are incorrect simply because it was simply because it is to my advantage to do so. I need the perspectives of others. This attendant needed Elisha's perspective. He had an incomplete perspective without Elisha's perspective. He needed it. Okay, so we're going to read 18 through 23. We're going to find out what is the resolution to all of this? And it is uh, not going to be, unless you know the story, it's not going to be what you think it is. So go ahead, verse 18. At the end of it? There we go.
All right. Thank you. Often irony uh, is used in Scripture. By the way, please read Scripture. <laughs> it's a great way. If you want to learn how to grow in your faith, please read, read your Bible. There, and if you need a Bible, come and see me. We have Bibles that we want to give you. Okay, so see me if you need a Bible. Read your Bible. Um, and when you read your Bible, sometimes you will find irony. Irony is when you expect something to happen, but then the opposite thing happens, right? Um, and so often irony is used in Scripture to communicate a deep spiritual truth. So hear the irony here, okay? Elisha prays that his attendant's eyes would be opened so he can see everything. And then he prays that the attacker's eyes would be closed so that they can't see anything. Ah, do you see the irony of that? Right? Open versus closed. It's a, right? uh, it's a change in perspective. Right? Somebody wasn't seeing enough, so he saw more. Some were seeing too much, so they saw less. Right? The attendant needed more perspective, and the attackers needed less perspective. And so Elisha prays and God strikes them blind and he leads them to Samaria. And Samaria is Israel's capital city, by the way, if you were interested in what that was. So he takes them from a, so a smaller, you maybe a fortified town where he was, Dothan, and he leads them to Samaria, the capital city. And they enter the capital city gates. They're surrounded by the armies of Israel and their eyes come up and uh, the king wants to kill them, right? Understandable. He wants to kill them. But instead, Elisha demands that he offers them hospitality. What does the hospitality do? God transforms their perspective, and then he transforms their relationship. Before we saw nothing, and now we see angels, and so we're filled with faith. Before we saw enemies, and now we see friends and guests. So we're filled with love and peace. Before we saw people with whom we had nothing in common. But now we see family. And so we're filled with love for one another. Paul says, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God wants to radically transform your relationship with other people and with himself. That is what God is interested in doing. And he does it by changing your perspective, by changing your lens. Think about Paul, right? Paul is once called Saul. He's attacking the church. Uh, you know, he's, he's seeking out believers so he can put them in prison and possibly kill them. And what happens to him? He gets struck blind. And then, later, he's at a house. And a believer comes to him and prays for him, and he regains his sight. A new perspective. A new outlook. It changes something about him. It's a, it's a repeated theme throughout Scripture. Anytime you see somebody go blind and then come back to sight, it's because God has transformed something in their life. Right? So when I talk about the attendant needing to change his perspective, taking on the perspective of Elisha, and us taking on the perspective of others, I want you to understand that the end goal is hospitality towards one another, is love and fellowship with one another, so that even enemies are transformed into friends and family. But you need to have the transformation happen first inside of you. You need to have the perspective change first. 
A lot of times we want to be friends with people, but we don't care or want to care about their perspective, about their lenses. All we want is peace. And in Scripture, there's a very interesting passage I always come back to. I think it's in Isaiah, where God is talking about the false prophets, and he says, all you say is peace, peace, all day long. Peace, 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 peace. All you want is peace, but you are not interested in changing your life to produce it. You just want it. What is it going to require from us to have peace with one another? It's going to require God to transform our perspectives, our lenses. That's how we can see and interact with this world through Christ. So let's pray, and then we're going to do some communion. Lord, we open ourselves up to you, God, to your spirit, that you would come and transform us. Open our eyes, O oh Lord. Open our eyes, Jesus, to see the angels that are all around us that we can't see. Give us the perspectives of others that we need so badly. Lord, let us not be satisfied with our own agenda, with our own lens, let us seek out the lenses, the perspectives of others. Transform us, God. Transform our relationships from enemies into friends, from foreigners into family, from those who we keep at a distance to those that we commune with and are in relationship with. Transform us from the inside out, Lord. Do a work inside of us, Jesus. Lord, if there's any among us today who would say, I need my life to be transformed by God. I need to take on a divine perspective. I need to listen and respond to the perspectives and lenses of others around me. Lord, would you open their hearts. In the name of Jesus, would you pour your spirit upon them that they might be able to feel and hear and see the lives of other people around them that they would see your angels at work, that they would see what you're doing behind the scenes, that they would experience their heart being knitted together with others, O oh Lord, that they would be in your presence, God. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and send Debbie downstairs. Could you grab the kids and see if they'd come up for communion?